0: Five messages really is unusually long, uh, at least for me, to sort of unfold a a section of Scripture, but it really reflects, I think, the depth and the riches of this passage that has become so beloved by so many people through the years. And, And we have moved very slowly and very thoroughly trying to saturate ourselves with the truths that are here because of their relevance and because of the inside, and because of the encouragement that they bring to our heart. But at the same time, there's a reason why we have grouped all of these messages together, or all of these verses together, across five messages now. And it's because Paul wraps them together with a sort of inclusio, uh, a mentioning in verse 17 of God's glory, or of our glory, I should say, and then down in verse 30, he mentions how we suffer together with Christ so that we can be glorified together with Him in verse, 30, verse 17. And then down in verse 30, that those whom God has justified, He will also glorify. So it's a section that is about suffering, but it's a section that's about glory. It's a section about all the pains and all the anguish, the difficulties of life, the trials of life. But at the same time, it's a section that raises our thoughts and minds above all of those things to the greater work that God's doing in bringing us to glory. All of the groaning, all of the distress with all the realities of this fallen world, Paul is trying to lay the the grand plan, if you will, that God is working through all of this suffering and working in ways that are far more glorious than you and I could ever know. And he's reassuring us that no matter what you may be going through, all that's taking place in your life is according to the plan and purpose of God, provided that you are one of his own. Your pain, your distress is not some sign that God has abandoned you. In fact, it is part of God's design in bringing you to ultimate glory. That's why he says all the way back in verse 17, We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we could be glorified with Him. So while you might view your pain and while you might view your suffering as some sign that God has left you, that you are all alone in whatever you're going through, Paul wants you to understand that it may very well be that God is accomplishing Some of the most important things ever in your life right now through your suffering. And by that, fully preparing you for glory. Now to show us that, Paul has taken us through a series of perspectives, if you will, on our pain. A series of of, uh, perspectives on our suffering. And he has shown us, for example, the place of creation along with our suffering in the first few verses there, and then the patience that God is teaching us through our suffering, the prayers of the Holy Spirit for our suffering, and then last week we started to look at finally the sort of apex of all of this, which is the providence of God over our suffering. All of these perspectives challenging us to have confidence that God is working providentially over all things, comprehensively over all things, coordinating every detail of all things so that they all work together for our good, the good of those who are called according to His grand purpose. So if you're one of God's children, you have responded to His gospel, you have loved Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you are to have this confidence that He's working all these things, all of this suffering, all this pain to fulfill His ultimate purpose. But Paul doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just state that and then move on. He wants us to understand in a richer way, in a deeper way, that this purpose, this suffering, and we mentioned last week how God has ordained all of this for us, this pain and this suffering has come out of his eternal decree. He he doesn't want us to think that God, if you will, is just acting in this particular moment, this particular time, so that you're seeing his faithfulness now, but you have to wonder about it in the future. He wants to sort of back away, if you will, and grant us a panoramic view of the entirety of what God is doing and really linking together a chain, if you will, from eternity past to eternity future to help us to see that God's purpose doesn't limit itself just to the particular moment that you're in. In fact, there's a whole chain, a whole series of things that God set out to do and is doing, a sort of golden chain, as some people say, of redemption or a golden chain of salvation that that are joined together together or joining together five distinct and sequential elements of everything God is accomplishing for you, giving you confidence that He not only is working now, but because He has already worked in the past and He will work in the future, He will most certainly always bring about His purposes for you. And they're good. They're for glory and nothing is going to shake them. Nothing in this temporal world will touch his purposes because his purposes are grounded not in the temporary but in the eternal. And so Paul sort of magnifies, if you will, the certainty of this purpose. God's working all things together for your good. He magnifies the purpose of, Uh, certainty, excuse me, of that purpose, by sweeping across God's purpose from eternity past to eternity future with this one grand, magnificent panorama of God's loving purpose that stands immovably fixed, if you will, on the foundations of eternity, linking together by five key elements, if you will, just how God strings... His purposes across all of time. This is the way Paul says it in verse 29. Speaking about that purpose, he mentions in verse 28, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Five elements that he gives us in these two verses that are really inseparably linked in an unbreakable chain or like a chain reaction, we might say, that once it begins, it expands or it propagates until it reaches its inevitable termination point, Uh, sort of a... A divine or or spiritual chain reaction where one active particle forms another active particle, if you will, in this chain of events or this cycle that moves to its full completion. But unlike the sort of the nuclear chain reactions or the chemical chain reactions we're familiar with, this is a very personal action where God is involved at every step, directly ensuring His purposes are established all the way from eternity past through temporal time to eternity future. And you can hear this, you can hear the unbreakable nature of this if you just pay attention to what Paul says here, how he repeats the word, those, or the word also. Emphasizing that there's a a connection There's a correspondence between each one of these actions by God, a correspondence for each person who participates in one so that they also participate in all of the other links as well. The very same ones who, if you will, enter or are initiated in the process are the very ones who end it. In other words, this isn't like your college class, where you have X number of people who got started in the process, but by the time you are ended, a number of people are whittled out or or dropped out or whatever it might be. This is a very complete group from beginning to end. So that those who are selected at the beginning are the very ones who are found complete at the end. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. No one No one is lost. And the point is that this this chain, this series of actions by God is absolutely unbreakable. You can't have one element without having the others. You can't have God initiating one part that He doesn't bring to completion. You can't have God, in other words foreknowing you or predestining you or calling you or whatever it might be without him bringing all the way to the very end everyone who has been called to the point of glorification. And that's the point. That's where Paul is trying to take our minds. He's trying to secure you and I through all the trials of life, through all the disappointments of life, through all the pain and the suffering of life, he is trying to secure your mind in this reality that if you have been foreknown, if you have been predestined, if you have been called of God, if you have been justified of God, then you will most assuredly be glorified by God. In fact, the whole certainty of this process is also emphasized by the passives. Every one of these steps is in the passive sense. We're not actively accomplishing any of this in ourselves. We don't foreknow ourselves. We don't predestine ourselves. We don't call ourselves. We don't justify ourselves and we don't glorify ourselves. God is the actor all the way through in this entire process, ensuring not only our good through every trial right now, but ensuring our ultimate glory. Not on your faithfulness, not on your actions, not even based on your failures, not even based on your uh, hardness of heart at times, your callousness at times to the things of God, but based... On his eternal decree and ability. Now we want to examine each one of these elements that Paul gives us here. So that we can understand exactly what God means. When he says each one of these things. Exactly what the implications are. So we can fully, if you will, grasp the glory of the magnitude of this panorama of loving purpose. That God has established for us. So we might begin right there in verse 29. With those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. The foreknowledge of God. It is really both the most fundamental and at the same time the most misunderstood element in this entire chain. And we could begin just by addressing, if you will, some of the misunderstandings that are often associated with this, just take them head on. Because people commonly read in their English Bibles this word, and they extrapolate from it that this must refer to some sort of data, some sort of facts that God cognitively knows or realizes or whatever in advance. They assume that this is some information that He gathers ahead of time, that common assumption then is that what God knows, what God looks at, must be the individual responses of every person who would ever hear the gospel. So he foreknows, or he knows beforehand, who will respond in faith to him. A kind of foresight of faith. This is the popular view of God. This is the popular view of this issue, God seemingly responding to what He sees, looking down, as some people say, through the corridors of time, and identifying all those people who will respond to Him in faith and then, based on that, predestining them to eternal glory. Now, those who take this view normally embrace it because, quite honestly, they don't like the alternative. They don't like any kind of idea of foreknowledge that would remove that element of individual choice. They embrace it because they fear the implications of any predestinarian idea that isn't based on individual choice. They fear a kind of inevitable fatalism that might result if we don't protect the idea of God's predestination being based on the foreknowledge of each person's individual faith. They fear the implication if God created people whom He knows will not respond to Him. He intentionally did not choose for salvation and glory. And they sense that it might be even somehow uncaring or unjust of God to do such. And probably most importantly, they fear... That if a church or a Christian embraces an idea of predestination that isn't based on this foreknowledge, without some notion of our individual response to God, that somehow it will lead to apathy in evangelism, apathy in in other things, apathy in prayer. If salvation and predestination isn't based on God's looking at our individual response, that it would leave us ultimately with no motivation to tell others about Christ, to call them to faith. Because that kind of predestination suggests that God is going to save who He's going to save. They would say, regardless of our efforts. So what's the point in putting forth effort? What's the point in telling others? We might as well sit back and rely on God's sovereign decree but the reality is those kinds of fears are really not eliminated by simply framing all of this in the understanding of God's decree when he sees our choice when he sees our response of faith because if you have been predestined If you've been destined ahead of time to salvation based on even what God saw, it doesn't eliminate the reality that the future is already fixed, that already in God's mind, those who are going to respond are those who are going to respond and those who are not are those who are not. In other words, just simply throwing out some idea of God looking ahead of time and deciding what we're going to do doesn't eliminate the so-called danger of apathy. It doesn't uh, somehow open up some grand freedom for the future where we must be zealous in order to win as many people to Christ as we can. It doesn't eliminate predestination, at least not on that understanding. Even if God made a decree and a predetermination based on your faith, it doesn't remove the fact that things are predetermined. And so you're still confronted with the question, why evangelize? Why do anything? Why move forward? Why speak? Why call people to repentance? No matter how God made His determination, whether by looking at our faith or looking at something else, the fact is the determination has been made. So what's the point in putting forth the effort? What's the point in prayer? Those who reject that teaching try to establish some precondition that God recognizes in men before he predestines them. Some response of faith. They they believe that by doing that, they're somehow preserving the freedom of man's will. But if God's already determined the future, No matter what he bases it on, are they really free? Isn't the future already fixed in the mind of God? No, what they're doing isn't providing a basis of freedom. What they're really doing is providing some basis of credit. So that man, at some point, ultimately becomes the source of his own salvation. God might be the means... But man is the source. Now, the reason I'm bringing up all these misunderstandings is because we need to clear them out of the way if we're really going to listen to the text. If we're really going to listen to what the Scripture is teaching here. We need to just address these ill-founded fears, these misunderstood dilemmas. We need to frame them for what they are, which is really just a smokescreen. They don't eliminate any of the problems of predestination. You still have to deal with the fact that over and over and over again, God has declared in His Word that He predestines and He chooses those who will be glorified. This is what we often call unconditional election, unconditional predestination. That is to say that when God predestines us to salvation, He does so Based on absolutely no condition, no circumstance, no situation, no inclination, no decision that he saw in us, his election and his predestination is absolutely unconditional when he makes that choice. Now, you might be asking yourself, if it's unconditional, if it isn't based on anything that it's talking about, what is this idea of God then foreknowing something? I mean, surely that's pointing to a a sort of condition. Well, maybe so, but it's not a condition in you. It's simply a condition in God. Because what he's talking about when he talks about foreknowledge is he isn't talking about factual knowledge that he's gathering. He's not talking about data that God is figuring out as he looks down through the corridors of time. What he's talking about is a relationship. He uses the word know in the sense of taking a particular interest in someone, in, in the sense of entering into a relationship of affection, a relationship of love, or a relationship of, of even approval. And it's the way that you see the word know used time and time again in Scripture. For example, Psalm 1, the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Now he's not suggesting in that that somehow God is unaware of the way of the wicked. That somehow he doesn't see it or he doesn't perceive it. But what he is suggesting is that God doesn't love the way of the wicked. He doesn't delight in the way of the wicked, but he does delight in the way of the righteous. Or as the psalm puts it, Uh, The psalmist puts it, God knows his way. He is intimate, familiar, delighted in it. Or in another way, Jesus speaks about the day of judgment when tragically people will come before him and he says in Matthew 7, they'll come and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? But Jesus says, I'll respond to them. And I'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus isn't saying I had no factual. Who are you? I mean, I mean, where'd you come from? He's not saying I never realized you existed. He's not saying I, I never had some data about you. What he's saying is I never entered into a relationship with you. That the Bible References by way of knowledge. I never set my delight on you. I never set my affection and my love on you. I had no intimate relationship with you in that way. This is the way God describes his relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. Amos 3.2, he says of Israel, You only have I known of all the families on the face of the earth. Or in Hosea 13, It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. Again, God isn't saying, I've never heard of other nations. Oh, there are other people out there. You're the only ones I noticed. He's not saying that. He, he's saying, you are the only ones with whom I entered into a relationship with. I set my affection. I set my love on you. Or if you're there in Romans, you can flip over to Romans eleven two, 2, where Paul uses this word in the same way. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Whom he set his love on, he knew in this special way. Or Paul uses the word in a similar way to the Corinthians. He says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. It's not saying God doesn't realize there are other people. He doesn't say God doesn't have the factual knowledge of other people, but he uses that word known in the sense of a relationship. We're Galatians 4, 9. Now after you have known God, or rather are known of Him, you enter into, if you will, His knowledge in that sense. Or you hear in the real sense with Jeremiah, when God told him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. Or maybe even we might say with Jesus, whom Peter says in 1 Peter 1.20, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Peter is in no way suggesting that God had to look down through some corridors of time and figure out how Christ would respond. No, what he's saying is that there was a relationship, an inner Trinitarian relationship of love and affection and commitment that existed before the foundation of the world. God's love was set on Christ and always will be. So over and over and over again, you hear this theology throughout Scripture, to be known by God, isn't it just to be realized, God realizing that you exist? That is sort of a given, but the Scripture everywhere uses the word know in the sense of one being set apart by Him, one being consecrated by Him to His purposes, one having God's love set upon Him, to enter into a relationship with Him. And this is exactly the way we see it being used in Romans chapter 8, because what's Paul saying to us here? He's not saying, or he's not telling us what God foreknew. He's telling us who he foreknew. He didn't foreknow something about you. He foreknew you. He entered into a a relationship. He set his particular interest on certain ones. And so the ground of our salvation, the ground of God's purposes in you, the ground of everything that he's doing, even through your suffering, doesn't have anything really ultimately to do with you. It has everything to do with God setting his affection and love on you, totally grounded in his initiative when he set you apart for his delight. It is his move. It is his move to enter into a relationship with you. So, as John says in 1 John 4 9, we love because he first loved us. That makes, by the way, your relationship ultimately not dependent on your love, not on your faithfulness, not on your performance, not on your good deeds you're in a relationship with God and if you're going to be brought all the way to glory it's going to be because he set his love on you so the whole process begins with a decision but it isn't your decision it's God's it is God's deciding to enter into a relationship with you well that leads to the second element, the second link, if you will, in this chain of God's magnificent purpose for our salvation, which is also there in verse twenty nine that he predestined us those whom he foreknew are the very ones he also predestined. The word simply means to preordain predecide predetermine it takes the word really for boundaries, the setting a sort of a framework and and, and that becomes used figuratively for deciding something, and he just adds those two things together. And it's a word that's used numerous times, numerous places in the New Testament, where it is unashamedly used of God predestining us to salvation. For example, Ephesians 1.5, we are predestined according to the purpose of His will. In, in Ephesians 1.9, it is according to His purpose. Or Ephesians 1.11, predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things after the counsel of His will. So when Paul comes to speak about this predestination, it is all grounded, not in our will, but in His will. That is why John says in John 1.13, you and I who are born again, He says, we were born not of the blood of men, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Those who are saved, those who are eventually justified, those who are eventually called, glorified, whatever it might be, they are saved because God predetermined that they would be saved. It's according to His purpose, according to His plan, according to the counsel of His will. That is the biblical teaching. So from all eternity, from all eternity past, before the foundation of the world, before creation, before anything ever existed, before you ever existed, therefore completely Before any merit or choice that could be made, God chose us in Him. Had nothing to do with our love for Him. It preceded our love for Him. In fact, it was in spite of our rebellion against Him. God simply chose by sovereign will, by sovereign decree, those who would be a member of His body. Totally apart from any will of man, totally apart from any human consideration, totally based on His own will. This is uh, what we call the doctrine of election. Because that's the way it's often described in Scripture. Not only the word predestination, but the word chosen, the word elected is used over and over and over again. As Jesus says in Matthew 22, many are called, but few are chosen. Few are chosen. It's the word eklego, literally to pick out, to select Over and over again, you have this again mentioned in Scripture that we inherit salvation not because we came to God seeking it, but because He came to us seeking us. Because He set His love on us. Because He chose us in order to bless us. Now obviously, that raises a lot of questions in the minds of people. Too many really we could tackle here. There's some great works that have been written on this, but some, some will ask, for example, well, I believe everybody chooses. You see invitations in Scripture. Jesus says, you will not come to me so that you might have life. He rebukes people for not coming to him. Revelation 22, let the one who is thirsty come. Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John 3.16, whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. So you see this emphasis over and over and over again in the Bible everywhere. It is emphasized that everyone who wants to come, everyone who refuses to come is rejected. Everyone who wants to come is invited. So how can you have God choosing, as we have read in some places... And at the same time, giving these whosoevers that are throughout the Scripture. Well, I really believe you You find the answer in John 6, 44. It says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me first draws him. So that behind every whosoever invitation you find in Scripture is the sovereign drawing choice of the Father. On the other hand, the Bible does emphasize a need of response. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Or he says in John six thirty nine, all the Father gives will come and whoever does come, I will never cast out. That's the other side is that God calls us, we do respond. God calls us, we do accept. God calls us and we do believe. But all of this is even the working of God. It is God's glory that He's the one who makes the initiative to draw us to Himself, to set His love upon us so that we, in turn, respond in love. So, you have sort of a tension, if you will, between these two truths. Scripture emphasizing personal responsibility, the call to respond to God, and yet it also definitely emphasizing God's initiative over our response. Attention, just like there's a tension between the reality that God is one and yet He's also three persons. Attention, if you will, that God exists as a trinity. A truth we can't fully explain, but we accept all the reality of it with both, if you will, poles. Or the tension that says that men wrote the scripture and yet at the same time God fully controlled every stroke of the pen, believing as we do that that God was working through those men in all of their individual personality, in all of their individual will, in all of their individual choice, so that we can open up the Bible and we can read a letter from Paul and we can read a a, a book written by Moses and they obviously reflect different personalities, they reflect different uh, time periods, they reflect different choices, different will. You can read in passages like, Paul saying, look, I desire to do this. I want to come to you. I want to visit you on this particular missionary journey. I want to do this. I want to do that. He's expressing his individual will, his individual desire. And yet within all of that complete will of man, we step back and we can say every jot and every tittle was absolutely controlled by God. So that all the scripture is inspired by him. It's breathed out by him. Those are paradoxes. I mean, excuse me, those are tensions. Tensions that we can't fully plumb the depths of, but we believe in every way are true. Or you remember Luke 22. Jesus says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. He was talking to his disciples at the Last Supper. He was saying the crucifixion was coming but it was all a part of God's determination. It was all part of God's sovereign plan. He planned it. He determined it. But the very next line says, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. So you see both sides. You see absolute sovereignty and yet you see individual responsibility. Every person still accountable for their choice. Still accountable to God. People struggle with this concept. They struggle because inevitably they end up asking, well, if God's making this choice, why did He do it? If God's chosen me, for example, for salvation. Why did He do it? Why not others? What was the difference? Really just reflecting the continued notion that crops up in every one of us that there must be be something virtuous something commendable something recognizable in us that would make God choose us at the end of the day though that's unbiblical thinking there is nothing the point is there's nothing in us that established our relationship with God we are in him simply out of the kindness of his will The ultimate question for us as we think then about the doctrine of election is not whether or not we can answer all the questions that come up, not whether or not these are easy concepts, but really ultimately, is this what Scripture teaches? Yes. And if that's the case, who does it glorify? It's God. And this is the point for Paul here in Romans 8. 28, that we would understand, even through all of our difficulties, even through all of our disappointments, as all things are working out in our life, our trials and our sins, our difficulties and our failures, to grasp that God is at work sovereignly over all of these things, bringing about the purpose that He decreed from eternity past to eternity future. By the way, I, I, I always say that people, if they're a believer, they all believe this. They all believe this. They might have objections on their feet, but they all agree in prayer on their knees. I don't care what your theological background is. When you bow down to pray, you believe in the sovereignty of God. I mean, if you don't, why pray? If you don't think God's controlling the things in the future, if you don't think that God is sovereign over all these things, if you don't believe that He really is ultimately at work bringing people to Himself, then why would you give thanks whenever someone believes? Why would you pray for lost loved ones? Why would you ask the Lord to work through our mission trips, through our evangelistic efforts? Why would you do any of that unless you believe God is ultimately sovereign over it all? You see, you really believe in the sovereignty of God, you just don't know it. You may not want to admit it because your brain tells you there's too many problems, but you ultimately respond in that way to God. You ultimately trust that He is ruling over all. It's His choice. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 1.5, in love He predestines us. All this is a result of God's kindness. All of this is a result of God's love. Setting affection on us in a unique way. Seeing His love set on us by His foreknowledge is intimate relationship so that He ultimately predestines us. And this is the point. God's foreknowledge, God's predestined predestination is intended to give you assurance in Romans 8 in the midst of your suffering you begin to think that somehow God has set any of that stuff aside you don't understand you don't understand the magnitude of what he has already begun long before the particular moment of suffering that you're in long before the pain that you're in he set out long ago on a purpose a purpose that those whom he would foreknow before the foundations of the world he had already decided would be glorified when the world ends. Well, there's much more in this chain, a much more glory in his calling and his justification and in our glorification, but we'll have to save it for next week. Let's stand together as we're dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, these are indeed rich truths, magnificent truths, mind-stretching truths, and yet we recognize that they are based in the most simple and straightforward concept of love. And I pray that you would help us today, that we wouldn't be tripped up in all of the philosophical and theoretical questions that might pop up in our brains as we think about time and our experience in it, past, present, and future. But I pray that we would rest in that simple concept of your love. You who exist outside of time, you who see all things before you in one glance. And yet you who In every moment of our experience, you're right there with us working out your purpose and your plan because of your love. Lord, I pray that you would help us to rest in that simple concept. The kindness of your will. The kindness of your purpose that's been set upon us. Lord, we have no reason. We have no... uh, condition that could ever have merited that kind of love. But we have one response. Praise and worship of our great Savior. Thank you, Lord, from those most undeserving of your kindness that you have so destined us for glory. May your name forever be our greatest declaration Our greatest praise. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.